The term athleisure has a somewhat opaque history, but Merriam-Webster, a company that officially added the word to their dictionary in 2020 after keeping tabs on it for several years to see if it warranted inclusion, traced it as far back as a March 1979 issue of Nations Business Magazine, in which the director of the Sporting Goods Manufacturers Association's Advertising and Promotions Department, a man named John Gebauer, said, quote, The booming popularity of fitness has given birth to a similar boom in apparel and footwear designed for those who actually participate in sports, and those who just want to look as if they do. The whole athleisure, a new term that has popped up, market, is in a state of tremendous growth, end quote. Contextually, a quote like this from a person working within that industry implies that this portmanteau of athletic and leisure was probably being used behind the scenes to refer to developing trends before it was mentioned to anyone outside the industry. And this mention thus approximates a 1979 or thereabouts coining date. Part of what's interesting about this concept, though, is how relatively quickly it became ubiquitous. The early seeds of athleisure as an industry-wide trend might have been planted in the late 70s, and some tiny shoots were seen growing in the 80s and 90s, but it really took off in the early 2010s and began to explode into the mainstream consciousness by 2014, when fast-growing, well-financed, highly-branded companies like Lululemon, a company which, arguably, kicked off the high-end yoga-pants-as-all-day clothing trend around this time, began to spread around the world. That said, this is a trend that existed long before Lululemon started selling gobs of expensive yoga pants, and in fact, well before yoga pants in their modern incarnation were even really a thing. Athleisure has become so ubiquitous that it's strange to think that there was a time in which sneakers, or trainers, were seldom worn anywhere but on the basketball or tennis court. It's strange to think there was a time when sweatpants were associated with playing sports, then with gangs, then with hip-hop, rather than being associated with comfort and casualness for everyone. It's strange to think that there was a time in which technical fabrics were seen as a sort of stylistic faux pas, rather than being built into just about everything, whether overtly or blended with more natural fibers like cotton to provide stretch, sweat-wicking capabilities, or other superpowers in everything from socks to shirts to denim jeans. There was a piece in The Atlantic back in late 2018 by the writer Derek Thompson entitled Everything You Wear is Athleisure. And though this is somewhat hyperbolic, it's not incredibly hyperbolic for many of us much of the time these days. And though earlier on it was sometimes called active wear instead of athleisure, the trend line this article traces takes us back to the development of synthetic fibers and the social signals we send through our fashion and habits. Around the time this style of clothing became popular, it was becoming increasingly common to demonstrate one's fitness level, the amount of attention one pays to one's health, basically, by wearing clothing indicative of sports participation or regular workouts. And one of the simplest ways to do this 
was via upgraded gym clothes that were convertible between actual workouts and heading out on the town or back to the office. This was also a moment in which yoga as a health and wellness practice, but also to some degree as a demonstration of social status. It was often people who were somewhat wealthier, younger, and upwardly mobile who were using their lunch breaks to take yoga classes or participating in a class before work in the morning. And thus, like holding a logo-emblazoned Starbucks latte, wearing yoga pants or displaying some other yoga-related accoutrement became a popular lifestyle choice for a certain desirable demographic. And these clothes and accessories became the peacock feathers that accompanied them. Like the aforementioned Starbucks latte, though, these trend lines have shifted over time, as companies like Lululemon and Starbucks have become more mainstream and accessible, which in turn has led those looking to demonstrate their health and economic fitness to seek out other, higher-end, more niche means of accomplishing the same. That same piece goes on to mention an earlier, much earlier, in fact, 1892-era trend in which the U.S. rubber company began producing rubber-soled shoes for the first time for athletes so they could maintain a better grip on tennis courts and other courts where they played sports. The emergence of intramural sports at American universities around this same time purportedly resulted in student-athletes romping around in their sports gear, demonstrating their fitness and marking them as being part of a particular group. And this association, and the eventual adoption of these sports-related clothing items as more casual, everyday clothing items, led polo shirts, leisure wear shorts, sweaters, and sports coats down the same path, all of which started out as actual sportswear meant to be worn while participating in a particular sport, but then evolved into something quite different and a lot more demonstrative. Trousers for women, likewise, started out as practical, sporty gear for riding bicycles, and shorter skirts and button-down tops for women began their lives as uniforms for field hockey teams, all of which eventually became more casual, non-athletic wear, before evolving further into other future articles of clothing. In most cases, it took decades for these sportswear-associated products to fully bleed over into non-sporting society, to become leisure wear, or in some cases, formal wear. The more modern iteration of this shift seems to have occurred on a similar timeline, with trends from the late 70s more or less taking over all but the most formal, couture, and denim-specific fashion seasons for the past five years, at least. What I'd like to talk about today is athleisure, including one particular athleisure item that's become near synonymous with the 2020 COVID-19 pandemic lockdown. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from the New York Times Magazine, and it's entitled Sweatpants Forever, with the subtitle, Even before the pandemic, the whole fashion industry had started to unravel. What happens now that no one has a reason to dress up? James Laver was an art historian and the curator at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London from 1938 until 1959. 
He's probably best known today, though, for being the person who, according to his obituary in the Journal of the Costumer Society in 1976, quote, made the study of costume respectable, end quote, alongside his contributions to the field of fashion history, a field he took up as part of his curatorial work, as he wanted to be able to date the artworks he was working with accurately, in part by assessing the clothing worn by the people featured in these works. Along the way, he won a bunch of fashion industry awards, co-hosted a television program on the subject, and became the person to go to about questions related to the relationships between clothing and other aspects of society, economics, cultural mores, and general sociological concepts that until this point were seldom directly connected to the way people designed, produced, and wore clothing. He also developed several theories of fashion, including the hierarchical principle, which posits that some people dress the way they do to indicate their position within society, the seduction principle, which states that people often dress in a particular way to attract a mate, and the utility principle, which says that people dress for comfort and practicality, for the local weather conditions, or due to the work they perform, for instance. Probably his most famous theory, though, is what's today called Laver's Law, which is usually presented as sort of a timeline of fashion indicating how a particular style or article of clothing is perceived by the public at different points in its life cycle. A piece of clothing that's considered to be indecent by contemporary people, for instance, is estimated to be, according to Laver's Law, about 10 years before its time. Something that's considered to be shameless is maybe five years before its time. And something that's daring is about a year out from being current, or smart, to use Laver's label for an of-the-moment in type of fashion. Something that's a year after its hot moment in the limelight is considered dowdy. Something that's hideous is ten years past its prime. Something ridiculous is twenty years out from being in style. And that same style of clothing is amusing, at about 30 years beyond being smart. At 50 years, though, that style becomes quaint. At 70 years, it's charming. And at 100 years past its prime, it's romantic. A style that is 150 years past being in style, according to this law, will often be considered beautiful. This theory While probably reasonably accurate for some points in history, he was, remember, a fashion historian. It's almost certainly less so today for a variety of reasons, among them that the fashion industry has changed so dramatically since even his time, not to mention the periods upon which he was basing this law, and that change has happened alongside all kinds of cultural shifts and evolutions in technology, including communication technologies, that have allowed us to share and iterate all kinds of ideas, including aesthetics, methods, and trends, way, way faster than was possible even a few decades ago. It is a useful concept, however, even if the timescales are no longer quite as accurate, because it can still be accurate to frame fashion trends and the perception of fashion aesthetics in roughly this way. Things can be derided by the mainstream, only for everyone to wake up one day and realize that these things they hated are actually amazing, actually quite beautiful and awesome, and we all want one, before once again becoming dowdy, ridiculous, even amusing. Though we'll probably look back on those same fashions someday, 
with nostalgic fondness, and maybe even with a resurgent interest and appreciation, perhaps even adopting or remixing some of them at some point. I bring this up because if you look back at the reporting and commentary about what we now call athleisure back in the day, the more recent instance of it anyway, back in the 1970s, you can see this process happening in real time, as some prognosticators and trendsetters loved it and adopted it immediately and saw a lot of potential in it, and then riffed on it, pushing it forward, while at the same time a great many other people, the majority of people actually, looked down upon it, perceived it as being lazy, as being unprofessional and sad and perhaps a bit shameless or indecent. There was a borderline moral panic about all the sweatpants and hoodies and sneakers people were wearing back in the 80s and 90s, and the same sort of pushback occurred again in the 2000s leading into the 2010s when yoga pants and their associated accessories hit the big time. A lot of those people who looked down on these trends have since adopted them, and that's totally normal. That's how these sorts of things go. But the shift that has occurred within this space, because of the aforementioned changes that have happened across society, ranging from social norms to technologies, have taken hold quite a bit more rapidly than similar changes we've seen in the fashion industry previously. And many of these changes have only been amplified by the social shifts that have occurred in 2020 due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Numbers around the world are mixed in part because of how they've been reported, and in part because many clothing companies are in pretty dire straits right now, and thus haven't been sharing as much data as they typically do, and have been sharing pretty sad data compared to what they might usually report. But in April of 2020, overall clothing sales dropped by 79%. Over that same period, though, sales of sweatpants were up 80%. In 2019, a report by Allied Market Research estimated that the global athleisure market was about $163.7 billion, up from $155.2 billion the year before. That same report painted a somewhat rosy picture for this facet of the industry's future, estimating it would hit $257.1 billion by 2026, though that estimation was made before the pandemic hit. So those forecast numbers could potentially go up or down, perhaps significantly, by next year's update. Also important to note here is that other estimates put this part of the fashion industry at closer to $300 billion as of mid-2019. The previous estimate seems more reputable and seems to frame the industry a little bit better to me. It seems more representative of the other reputable-seeming estimates as well. But these are not absolute concrete numbers, so there's a lot of room to quibble about what fits into this category, what specifically is being measured, and what math is being used to extrapolate the size of the market from those original starting points. At the time, both of those estimates were being made, though. The prevailing wisdom was that the premiumfication of casual athleticism-inspired fashion was paying off in a serious way for brands like Lululemon, Under Armour, Nike, North Face, Puma, and Adidas, among others, and the steady increase in spending money held by the so-called millennial generation in particular, a cadre that tends to be quite a bit more health-focused than previous generations, boded well for this sort of fashion sensibility going forward. 
It's anyone's guess if that will continue to be the case, now that a lot of our expectations have been upended by the pandemic. But the confluence of lockdowns, widespread work from home and take classes from home, circumstances, and an overall stressful vibe accompanying a great many unknowns, economic issues and potential health issues, all of that has many people in this space predicting very good things for athleisure wear in the near and medium future at least. So this shift was already underway when COVID things began to happen, in part because of that supposed millennial sensibility about health and wellness, and in part because athleisure has become a sort of social status symbol. That article in the New York Times Magazine is about what seems to have gone wrong in the fashion industry, how the pandemic blew up that powder keg, and what maybe happens next. The powder keg in question was multifaceted, but part of the issue seems to have been what's sometimes referred to throughout this piece as the global fashion system, which is made up of the designers themselves, the fashion media ecosystem, and the storefronts through which their wares were sold. This system, which for a long time has been oriented around Fashion Week, a period of time and series of events during which new designs are shown to the public, which allowed potential buyers to see what their options were for the following fashion season, which was usually about six months away in pre-internet times, but that time frame was cut in half as soon as normal people could see these future fashions earlier on, leading to the introduction of mid-season releases. That doubled the number of designs, or in some cases, more than doubled them, depending on the type of clothing these designers were making and the type of audiences for whom they were making those clothes. And it dramatically increased the costs of doing business for everyone involved, because more clothes meant more production, but also more media buys, more advertising, more runway shows, more wheeling and dealing to get their work into the right fashion magazines. This also dramatically increased the amount of surplus products being produced, leading to a situation in which gobs of clothing were being left in warehouses, made but unsold, and in a lot of cases, speeding up the new clothing to sales shelf clothing transition to make room for the new stuff that would be arriving sooner than was previously typical, which had the knock-on effect of incentivizing designers to produce their wares more cheaply because there was a good chance that a lot of them would be sold at a discount or would be sent back to the maker by the store unsold at the maker's expense, a practice called return to vendor, or RTV. This created a cycle in which more clothing was arriving more rapidly, and as a result, more of that clothing went on sale more frequently, but more marketing also had to be bought to get those clothes in front of people to make them want those clothes. So many consumers became acclimated to overall lower prices and near-constant sale prices on clothes, and the stores at which they shopped became dependent on those lower and sale prices as well. Otherwise, far fewer people would buy, and they would drown in all the clothes they were being sent. The end result of this cascade of small changes to the way things were previously done was that many designers could barely make a profit on what they were making. Many stores were barely solvent, despite selling more clothes than ever before. More people were spending more money on clothes, but those clothes were shoddily made compared to what they might have bought a decade before. 
and the fast fashion movement, which is defined by a very quick turnaround time, from runway to store shelves, overall lower quality of the goods sold, and a lot of downsides and abuses, from sweatshop labor to pollution and waste, that more or less took over whole swaths of the fashion industry, especially in the low and middle price tiers. On the higher end, brands were also trying to produce more to keep up with this new, faster-paced trend cycle, but more produced did not equate to more sold, and a lot of their merchandise was eventually RTV'd, costing them gobs of money. In 2018, the high-end fashion label Burberry revealed that it was burning $37 million worth of their own merchandise each year due to these returns. They declined to put these unsold items on sale or to donate them because, they said, they wanted to maintain their brand value, which meant that even as they produced way more than they could ever sell, they had to maintain the brand's sense of exclusivity, hence the destroying of these garments so that nobody else could wear them, rather than getting them into more hands. Novelty trends emerged alongside fast fashion, as it allowed designers and stores to sell people on the newest micro-trends, like bootcut or distressed jeans, and they allowed some designers and stores to create an air of exclusivity around what they were selling, despite the quality and conditions leading up to the production of those goods often being similar to everything else being sold. These micro-trends were invented essentially just to convince people that they needed to buy more of those clothes so they could get them off the shelves to make way for the next micro-trended goods. At the core of this Times Magazine piece is a designer who went through this whole cycle and who began to hate his job because it involved making a lot of nonsense for people who were convinced to like it before more nonsense was created to convince them that the old nonsense was no longer okay and cool. Since the pandemic started, he's gone on to start a far smaller company that takes a direct-to-consumer approach to selling, and which has focused on comfortable casual wear, like tracksuits, cozy socks, and an apparently quite popular line of sweatpants. The overarching storyline is that a collection of changes in how the fashion industry operates has been creating a bubble, and it was only a matter of time before that bubble popped. Maybe explosively, maybe slowly and quietly, but something had to give eventually, because this was not a sustainable model for anyone involved, economically or environmentally. It would seem that COVID-19 and its associated consequence have served as a pin to pop that bubble, and a lot of long-lived, well-respected companies are going bankrupt, in some cases restructuring for this new reality, and in some cases, more or less just selling off their brand assets, which are then bought up by fire sale investment companies so they can slap those logos on some other products in the future once all of this has blown over to try to make their money back. In the article, Anna Wintour, the editor of Vogue magazine, said, quote, It crystallized a lot of conversations that the fashion industry had been having for some time. For an industry that is meant to be about change, sometimes we take a long time to do just that, because it's so big and there are so many moving parts. But now we were really forced into a moment when we had to reset and rethink, end quote. She went on to say, quote, I think in general, we've created a system that is unrealistic and a strain for even the largest of brands. 
It could be that some younger designers were playing the same game and trying to keep up with the big brands, rather than determining what's best for them. End quote. The next steps for the fashion industry are unclear at the moment. There are hints that direct-to-consumer, D2C, business models might work. This is where companies avoid having brick-and-mortar in-person infrastructure, like buildings, and instead sell mostly online, directly to the folks who might buy their products. But even that is somewhat uncertain, as many D2C clothing companies are struggling at the moment as well. The seasons of clothing that we've come to expect may go away or change shape as other aspects of the industry evolve and disappear. But that's unclear too, as building a business at scale generally requires that customers continue to buy things over and over, over time, and the incentive to do so goes away, at least with the necessary frequency for the books to balance at that scale, if there aren't regular new things to buy to replace your existing things that otherwise you would just continue to use. That may mean that prices will increase, but the clothes will increase in quality. It may mean that people will be able to buy subscriptions to clothes instead of buying so many one-off products, something like Rent the Runway does with higher-end clothing today, but with a more accessible model to capture the attention of the mainstream, a sort of Netflix or Spotify for secondhand clothing. It may also be that seasons will be more asynchronous, and events like Fashion Week will disappear, replaced by an array of individual companies marketing promotions, scattered throughout the calendar, fashion periodicals doing their best to keep up. One of the fears some designers and other fashion industry business people have is that the D2C model and subscription models reliant on physical goods seem to be less likely to allow a company to scale into something like Nike. Such mega-companies, at least as we've built them in the past, require very different, more energized, and high-profit-margin models to get that big. On the other hand, a fashion world filled with comparably smaller, but more sustainable and more interesting, potentially, businesses with more varied designs and business models could be beneficial on a lot of levels, if not necessarily for the investors who have been behind the scaling of a lot of existing fashion companies up until this point in history. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Sunny Days, The Children's Television Revolution That Changed America by David Camp. This was kind of a feel-good book, all things considered. The events that it details took place at a very borderline traumatic time in the United States for a whole lot of people, but the 60s leading into the 70s and then continuing onward until the 80s, 90s, and even today, children's television, especially on PBS and similar stations, the public broadcasting channels that were partially funded by the government, these were highly influential for a whole generation, maybe a couple of generations of kids growing up in the United States. And the emergence of these shows was fairly revolutionary unto itself because of the research and concepts that went into them, because of the people who were involved, because of the radical nature of inclusion of different races, of different types of people that took place on these shows, which normalized certain things which were very much not normal up until that point. 
It's all very interesting, and I think also very relevant, especially now in a time where such publicly funded projects are not as broadly popular as they once were. And they're very easy to challenge in part because they've been made into a bit of a political hot potato. Looking at the history of these types of projects, though, and these types of shows, these children's shows in particular, is really refreshing, but it's also quite enlightening. These are very interesting projects that happened at a very interesting time. If any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Sunny Days by David Camp. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast, along with transcripts of the episodes at letsknowthings.com. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. Feel free to reach out and say hello on your social network of choice. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter and such. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.